London. The show had a Pierrot theme. Rick was a photographer. Bonnie arranged for him to take photos of me in Pierrot makeup for the front cover of the programme. She also wanted him to take photos of me smiling, laughing, looking sultry, sulky, etc. These photos would form a collage of me for a backdrop. This backdrop was for a solo that Anna Ball was choreographing on me. Jamie was to drive me to Rick and Bonnie's place in Earl's Court in London for the photo shoot on a Saturday. I took my makeup box with me and Rick would have the costume there in his studio. Fate just threw Jamie and I together, or maybe Bonnie did. She liked romance. She actively encouraged promiscuity. Not that we were at all promiscuous, and I think that was a big part of the attraction for Jamie. He was used to girls jumping into bed with him at the first opportunity, but I was still a true romantic, Catholic roots. Jamie was up for a challenge and paid me lots of attention, and I lapped it up. Bonnie's flat was in a mansion block in Earl's Court in the centre of London. It has always been a colourful area. I had never experienced anything like it, with so many people of different nationalities drifting around the streets at all hours. The entrance to her flat was up a big wide staircase and through the biggest door I had ever seen. The huge door was painted black. Inside, you went up more stairs to enter the flat on the first floor through yet another black door. Everything was dark and mysterious. Many of the walls were painted black. Some were deep red. The furniture was an eclectic mix of old and even older. Pictures and posters were randomly hung in every room. All the lampshades seemed to be made from some kind of beadwork and the light bulbs must have been only 40 watts as they gave off very little light. I'm not sure why I actually liked it there. I hate gloomy places, but this was exciting. It felt scary, but the looseness of, of it all was fascinating and magnetic. Bonnie lived there with Rick. Back then, there was a stronger divide between adults and children. Of course, we were not exactly children. I was 16 and Rick and Jamie were 19. We had deep respect for Bonnie, but in this flat, we were treated as equals. The photo shoot was a gas. Low music, alcohol, Rick swishing silk around my shoulders. When we had completed the photos for the collage, we had great fun doing a Pierrot-style makeup on me and then wrapping reams of white material around my head like the girl in the Bieber posters that were so trendy at the time. We had no idea what we were doing and the photos looked a bit raw, but they were very on trend. We were pleased with our work. Jamie could now drive me home before collecting me the next day to take me back to school. Joy of joys, arriving with an amazing looking boy in a car on the weekend that was not an official vis weekend or holiday. It was pure luxury. I remember the drive home. A particular piece of road that goes over the river near Richmond still brings back memories of that evening. I thought my heart would burst with happiness. I was so proud as we drove up to my home. Mum, Dad, Gaynor and Gerald came to greet us. You're tall, was my brother's comment. Jamie, ever the charmer, draped one long muscular arm around 
my brother's shoulder, beamed his magical smile at him and said, Thank you. What great hair you have. My brother looked a little shaken, having never been hugged or complimented by a boy before. I noticed he didn't try to escape his arm, though. We went inside. Jamie continued to charm the pants off them all, saying what a lovely home we had, asking Gerald and Daddy blokey questions and introducing himself to Gaynor as if she was the most important person in the world. He left quite quickly to give me some time with my family, and when my family walked him to the car, all our neighbours flocked to their gates to see who this glamorous stranger was. Mum said to Mrs Hokey, our next-door neighbour, This is my daughter's boyfriend. Isn't he handsome? And they all had to agree. We weren't embarrassed at all. We liked playing the part. And even though we had only known each other a little while and were not a couple, we were happy to play along. We held hands and smiled amorously at each other for our audience's pleasure, of course. Never disappoint your audience. The Big Solo Anna Ball was a guest contemporary teacher. I was never really a contemporary dancer. We had regular contemporary classes, but I never felt like I was particularly good at it. Anna Delaunay and her sister Tara were the stars of contemporary dance in the school. They were the cool girls with boobs and long straight blonde hair, the owners of bell-bottom jazz pants and cheesecloth shirts. They listened to Pink Floyd and knew what they were going on about. They read books like Catcher in the Rye and Smoked in the Bushes. It was a big surprise to me then when I was told that Anna Ball was to choreograph a solo piece for me. I wasn't nervous, but I didn't think it would be the amazing experience that it turned out to be for me. The music was cantata by John Williams, a beautiful piece that became very famous. It was four minutes long, far longer than any solo in a school performance should really be. The cool girls called Anna Ball Anna. They were friends with her. I didn't know her too well, so I called her Miss Ball, which she found funny. She was from South Africa and was very laid back. Because it was just the two of us and we mostly rehearsed on Sundays for this piece, on a hot Sunday evening in June, Miss Ball called me into Studio 6 to begin choreography on my first solo at the school. We listened to the beautiful guitar music and my breath was taken away. Miss Ball explained to me how she saw this piece as a reflection of my career so far and had actually asked to choreograph it on me. I thought she hardly knew me, that she was only interested in the cool girls who were amazing contemporary dancers. I was stunned at how well she actually did know me and that she knew what I had gone through, breaking my leg. The music was set in three pieces. Each piece sounded similar but was musically interpreted differently. The first part was happy-go-lucky, free and easy, and this is how she saw my dancing before my accident. The middle section was heartbreakingly painful, almost grinding to a halt whilst losing tempo and direction. This part would reflect the pain and struggle of breaking my leg and how, like the music, it almost brought me to a halt. The third and final section returned to melody, but with more caution. The caution developed into strength, and the melody and tempo again became strong, as my dancing had done too. Time slipped by in these rehearsals, and we created a beautiful piece together. 
Of course, the choreography was all Miss Balls. I take no credit for that. But she really read my body and my life, and I learned so much from her. In holding a mirror up to my experience, I understood myself. Yes, it was like therapy, I suppose. The best therapy ever. My solo could have been a serious ego trip. Madame Benito had organised the backdrop to be a montage of photos of me in various emotional states. When this montage was first projected onto the stage in rehearsals, a gasp reverberated throughout the students who were watching the rehearsals from the auditorium. We had never seen this kind of thing before. No, it would be nothing, but then it was quite something. Luckily, I was just too busy to let it go to my head. When Miss Marsh and Madame Benito heard that my solo was four minutes long, they said it would have to be cut. When they watched it for the first time, they decided that it didn't need to be cut at all. It was a very special and personal piece, and I was honoured to have that opportunity and therapy. <laughs>